It's Clock of Plooney. Was that chanting? What was that? Hi, I'm Jacob Kenny. And I'm Liam McPherson. It's the newest edition of your DoorDasher's favorite podcast. It's It's Speech from from the the Throne, throne. Episode Episode 11. 11. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest from the Halls of Power. But not with more sad trombone sounds. We're just here to argue. Hey, Jacob, what are we talking about today? Well, Liam, we're recording this on May 17th, and that is the day after the last, and for most people watching, the first Ontario leadership debate. The leaders of the Ontario NDP, Green, Liberals, and PCs did debate about Northern Ontario issues a few weeks before that essentially no one watched it, sadly. We're recording this as well. I have to give a disclaimer. The day before we were expecting results from the Alberta leadership review of Jason Kenney. So right now, we don't know the results of that. But right now, we're focusing on the Ontario leadership debate. And what an interesting debate it was. The election so far has been a bit of a sleeper. Yes, exactly. That that's the only real pundit reaction that, that we can we can give it. The, the PC started ahead, they remained ahead, and the margin really hasn't changed between them and the Liberals at all in this this election. There's some some minute narrowing at the beginning of the election, but essentially the PCs have remained between eight and ten points ahead and completely unstoppable. So this debate was was really the the last chance for the Liberals or the NDP, you know, any of the the progressive parties looking to unseat Doug Ford to create some momentum to separate themselves from the rest of the herd and and catapult themselves to victory. Did that happen last night? No. <laughs> Not even close. Unfortunately, Del Duca and Andrea Horvath, the leaders of the Liberals and the NDP in Ontario respectively, they had many chances to take uh, Doug Ford out. And they chose instead to to lob balls at each other rather than to focus on their main enemy. Now, I think that the the main theme of this podcast for me is going to be talking about message discipline. Because it's something that Ford has, and you could signify it by the fact that he was willing to break the rules and bring a binder full of his slogans to the debate. And, you know, the rest of the, the candidates on stage, they, they griped at him. They attacked him for, for being a binder when they were showing off at how improvised and well-practiced they were. But the thing is, is that, you know, Ford, he has a brand. He stays on brand. He knows what his talking points are. He literally brings his talking points to the debate. And I think rather than making fun of Ford, the leaders of the progressive parties that are challenging him, they need to learn from his example. Because he was the only one that really stuck to his message. Bring your literally, own binders. Literally, don't attack the don't attack the one kid that studied. Study yourself. Bring your own cheat books. That's the lesson. Thanks for listening, guys. And it's not about the it's not about the cheat books. It's about the fact that you stay on message. You stay on script. So let's look at what each of the leaders wanted to keep as their script. The liberals, their message is Ontario, place to grow, and we heard that a few times from Stephen Del Duca. Was that message really being enforced by the attacks that he brought against Doug Ford? You know, especially when you go against something like Highway 413. You know, his his line is Ontario place to grow, and yet his constant reframe was I want to stop building this highway. And he does replace it, and he does say I'm going to use the money instead to build schools. 
The problem is, if you're you're saying that you want to build schools, just say you want to build schools. When you lead with you're going to cancel something, you're sort of negating your whole point of Ontario place to grow. And then especially later in the debate, when Andrew Horvath started attacking him and replaying the the 2018 election, Del Duca tried to defend himself. He said, "We're we're not replaying the 2018 election. But then he went on to defend Wynne. He went on to defend his record as a minister. Again, that doesn't really show that you're growing if you're still making the same arguments from four years ago. If you want to say Ontario is a place to grow, you have to show that you yourself have grown. And when the, what, the moderator, Steve Pagan, asked all the leaders, what's one thing you regretted? What a great chance for Del Duca to show that he had grown, that Ontario was a place for him to have grown as a person, that he learned something from the humiliating defeat of the Ontario Liberals. And did he choose to show that? No, he didn't. Instead, he, he defends his record again, doesn't really show a, a genuine regret. Now, the, the NDP have an even worse message discipline problem. They have several strong messages, but the key point that I just said there is several. So they started the, the election with 10 more seats. We have 40 seats right now. We need to win 10 more, and then we'll have government. So that's, a, that's an interesting message. It, it shows that they have a strength to build upon. Even though normally if you're leading in the polls, you want to say that you're, your polling is your strength, but they're not leading the polls. So instead they're saying, well, we have, we have all these incumbents. Our incumbents are our strength. We just need 10 more people, and then we have government. That's, it's actually a really good frame for the NDP uh, to take. They're, they're building on their strongest strengths. Did we hear that line once from Andrew Horvath in the debate? Nope. Not at all. Their platform is introduced as, they broke it, we'll fix it. Again, that's a great frame. The PCs have been bungling everything that they, that they stumbled into. The NDP have a plan to solve it. Again, I'd, I have nothing wrong with that. Did we hear those lines once from Andrew Horvath? Nope, never did. And then as well, a subtitle of the, Ontar- of the, the NDP platform is, Strong, Ready, Working for You. Did we hear that? ever from Andrea Horvath. No. <laughs> so we have three possible messages. She chose none of them. Instead, what we did get out of Andrea Horvath is these aimless stories of people in swing ridings that sort of have these vague challenges in life. And, you know, there'd be questions like, oh, what are you going to do about healthcare? Well, thank you, Steve. I met, I met Wendy in Thunder Bay, Ontario, and she's telling me that it's really difficult to put her her old folks in a in a home and it's so expensive so we need to do something about that and that was basically her answer like it's it's pointless you just have these aimless narratives the ndp you have three possible messages you have a great platform full of ideas did we hear any of that from angio horvath not at all and then mike schreiner was there mike schreiner was good He's always good. He's always been a, a great politician. It's just unfortunate that he's he's an amateur working for an amateur party. I, I seriously wish that he he sounded like more of a new Democrat than Andrea Horvath. I wish he was leading the the new Democrats. So that's that's my take. Message discipline. And Doug Ford, he was on brand. We'll get it done. He said that every time that's been in every ad that's been in his platform, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but he's always on it. And he always sticks to message. All the other leaders uh, that were on the stage with him didn't do it. And that's why Ford is, is going to win. Well, to start off with, this election uh, has been a sleeper, had been up until we watched the debate. 
Um, nothing was really like like the vote. Every all the votes in the polls are like pointing towards the Doug Ford majority. It's important to note that it's pretty soft support from when that polling was done. Um, I, I think Del Duca. I saw some Google data that came back where de, um, all, all the leaders enjoyed spikes in in searches for their names by Ontarians. Uh, and Stephen Del Duca actually enjoyed the biggest spike because he's had sort of an issue where nobody knows who the heck he is. Uh, so it seems like finally people are looking this guy up, and so he got a, he led the mentions. Uh, now whether or not that translates into significant support anywhere, I'm not sure. Like it's still too early. Yeah, to like tell. The, he he led the mentions because he was the one guy that no one knew who he was. So it's of course people are going to. So I, I, so let me sort of flesh out what I'm what I'm going to say about each each leader's performance. So we'll start with the premier. So I think you're absolutely right that the premier, whether we like it or not, some people say he's kind of a bull in a china shop, and he is in how he governs, but in how he campaigns, he is a classic retail politician. He knows his messages. He knows the messages to pivot to. And that, yes, could have been in part because he had a binder, like you said. But even if you watch uh, clips of him without his binder, like maybe he might stumble a little bit more, but he still knows kind of the key things that he needs to pivot to. He he knows the key things that he needs to touch on uh, to hammer home his message. And I think, I do agree. I think that that's where specifically Del Duca and, and Horvath got a little bit lost. And and so what I will say about them is, I, so I was actually, when I was at the gym today, I saw an ad because like the channel in our gym was like some Ontario channel. And so I got an Ontario election ad and it was an NDP ad. And I actually thought it was quite clever. Uh, and th that's the thing about the NDP is some of their, some of their messages are good. Some of their messages aren't. So I was watching this ad and the ping pongs, like it's like table tennis or ping pong and the, the ball's going back and forth. And there's a guy with a red tie and a guy with a blue tie. And these like this, this big, bold text, you know what they say about like, yeah, you, you got to understand the ad, uh, you know, or sorry, you know, it's a good ad when the sound is off and you can still understand it. And I, the sound was off and I completely understood. It was like big, bold text flashing, like. Um, you know, long-term care tobacco flashed on the screen or something like that. Something about healthcare, something about like an environment failure, something about a fiscal failure, something about, you know, failures popping up on the screen as this, these two guys, one with red and red tie and one with a blue tie are duking it out, mm. playing, <laughs> playing ping pong. Oh, like and like the, the, the ball is orange, which you you don't really care about at that point. But then all these orange balls drop from the sky <laughs> and like flood the, flood the table. And then like Andrea Horvath steps out and picks up one of the balls and is like, you know, says her like slogan or whatever. I'm like, Oh, that's good. Um, like, like, cause like, I mean, like obviously it's the classic NDP thing. Like you've, you're tired of voting red and blue vote for us, but like, it, I thought it was done in a real clever way. Um, and then I can't remember, this is probably bad that I can't remember what the slogan was, but like, that's kind of the problem is, and where I'm going to critique them is the, the overuse of the folksy anecdote in the past, particularly like 20 to 25 years, it's, it's really becoming noticeable when politicians yeah. make stump speeches, when politicians perform on the debate stage, it's always the folksy anecdotes like Pierre Polyev. Everyone has, wants to be Bill Clinton. Everybody wants yeah. to be Clinton. And I don't know if he's the guy that popularized that kind of speaking. And I know Obama was the same way. I know that mm -hmm. um, Arnold Schwarzenegger was actually the same way. I know that Polyev, you know, Andrea Horvath, like it spans a lot of different political sides of the political spectrum. But it's it's overused, so she kept pivoting to these, yeah. oh Deborah and so and so. Like she's had both her legs like crap out, so she she's waiting. <laughs> and like I, I know they're trying to bring it home, and they're trying to bring the reality of, of, of like I'm. It's not a laughing matter that the millions of Canadians on wait lists right now. I'm, we're not laughing about that. We're just it, it, it's it's the way in which she delivers her message, which is instead of hammering home a, a line or a or a, or a thing 
a political goal that she wants people to remember about her party, she she I think has an over reliance on the folksy anecdote, which is why I think Jacob yep. and I make fun of it. Um, and when she should be hammering home a message, you know, Doug Ford's message is, which is hilarious, but it's a good message. We're saying yes. Um, and he does have a little bit of history on his side in that his managerial style, and I, I'm, not, I'm not saying he's a good premier because I, I don't think he's a good premier, but his managerial style compared to some conservative government, say a Harris government, he's a far cry from a Harris slash and cut government. He's made cuts. Um, I'm not saying he doesn't cut. He has a reputation for cutting, but Mike Harris was like slash Mr. Slash and burn. So he's, that's why he's saying we, we're saying yes, because for conservative governments in Ontario, he's more like a Bill Davis. He's just kind of a bland, boring populist that just says yes. Like pretty much he's stayed in power by every time he's made a policy error. Um, so the, well, the first year for the first year or so the policy errors were, were awful and he'll still make rookie communications mistakes and i could get into all the communications mistakes and 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 all the um uh self-inflicted wounds that he's you know suffered but the reality is when you look at him as a guy who has a brand and knows his brand he knows his brand so he was saying we're saying yes and so like i i can remember that you can remember that uh, and he can list a bunch of things that he's going to spend money on. And he is pretty much just spending money on it. Like uh, he, he's running deficits. He's not balancing the budget. He's not. He's departing from that conservative, traditional, like neoliberal conservative path that we've seen in the past few years. And uh, so when it, when, but when you look at a guy like Del Duca, what I, what, what I will say that Del Duca did right was I mean, it's clear he, he knows his stuff. Like when he speaks, he's very sure of his facts. So I'll give him credit there. He knows his stuff. You can't say that he he would be somebody who would just make something up on the spot. He has a, a command of the policy book for sure. Mm -hmm. However, um, I, I agreed with your point, Jacob, when you said that you know that with the 2018 election uh, that he kept mentioning, you know, we don't need to go, we don't need to go back to the 2018 election. And you know, he said it a few times. I think he only needed to, needed to say it once as a good line. But when he kept bringing it up and bringing it up, you know, I noticed Andrea Horvath tried to exploit that and say, you know, you don't want to go back there, Stephen, to all your failures. And then they, then it's a bunch of infighting between liberal and NDP. And I think that's the danger in, you know, like before you and I were broadcasting, we had a little discussion about whether the opposition leaders should have focused purely on the premier or whether they should be able to attack each other when they feel they need to or if they feel there's a reason to. Uh, and you're you're something of a I mean, we'll, we can get into this after, but because uh, I want to know your views on this. But I, I found that. I, th I think that, that Andrea Horvath and Del Duca attacked each other too much. I think it took the focus off of the premier for sure. Like they allowed themselves to be drawn into petty fights and, and Stephen Del Duca wasn't good enough at avoiding that bait. When Andrea Horvath came for him, he should have just ignored her. I, I, I agree with you there because it, it just, then he kept getting drawn into fights. You can't keep getting drawn in. I think it's one thing to respond once or twice. Um, and, and like, but, but like, if you keep getting drawn in, it becomes a distraction and you're not attacking the person you need to, which is the person who's the incumbent premier. You need to be focused on the premier and Andrea Horvath, instead of having a coherent message, like Dodel Duca came through with, you know, his, his message has been the choice is yours. You know, you can have highway 413 or you can have uh, repairs to schools or you can have, and, and like, he's had some great messages on social media, but bizarrely, I didn't really see them, uh, you know, expand, expanded upon enough 
when he was speaking, you know, he has some good messages, but he also had a little bit of trouble kind of hammering something home in the way that he should have and, and making himself memorable other than, as he said, people finally found out who the heck he was. Now, that being said, I mean, I, I don't think he's certainly, I don't think he's given anybody a reason to like dislike him. I just, I'm, I'm, I fear that he's not doing enough to stand and same with Andrea Horvath that they're collectively not doing enough to stand above Doug Ford message wise, despite the fact that they have compelling ideas. It's the way they sell them. And Doug Ford is, for for better or worse, a charming kind of fatherly figure that sells his messages in a comforting way for, I think, a lot of people. And if people like don't hate him, they're sorry, if people like there's people who love him or people who hate him. Uh, there's people who love him, people who hate him. And there's people like in the middle who don't mind him. And like it's the don't minds who are going to, you know, need to be swayed by Del Duca coming out of nowhere and and, and trying to get his message above the fray of this kind of folksy brand that's kind of made everybody indifferent to the policies that they have on offer. And Mike Schreiner, as you said, like it was, it was great for him to get the the screen time. And I think he's increased his presence, like any sort of appearance on the, on the debate stage increases your presence. So that's all not, not a bad thing for him. But other than that, I, I don't know if, I mean, it's, that's the classic problem with the greens under the first past the post electoral system. They, they might get more net votes, but it doesn't really translate into additional seats. Uh, and I like that you said that he should be leader than the new Democrats because he's more of a new Democrat than Andrea Horvath. And I thought that was hilarious. And I agree. I think he, um, Mike Schreiner's a very compelling political personality that has a lot uh, a lot to say. And, and I think he sold his message very well, very well. He stuck to a consistent theme the whole night. And it wasn't the environment, honestly. It was very new Democratic. It was taking care of people. But he sold it in a way... Uh, I mean, even him, I would knock for not really having as, as good a slogan. Like, I think I think people need to realize that sloganeering is important. So debates are a little bit of a performance. Yes, there's going to be something of a substantive policy discussion, but there's also performing. If you're going to perform and you want people to remember you, you need a key message. Yeah. When there's only like three people that work for the for the party in total, I can forgive it. Sure. He just has no staff sure. that are going to actually brief him. The other two leaders, there's it's no unforgivable. Excuse. It's unforgivable. Yeah. And so as progressives, I mean, I don't know about the, the rest of you listeners if you had a chance to watch but like i'm i'm certainly feeling disappointed and i agree with uh, many points of, of of about what you said uh i think that they allowed the temptation of attacking one another to take away from attacking their main attacking their main opponent opponent uh and i think doug ford for the most part held up pretty well there were a couple of, of punch lines from del duca um one of them was lifted from jack layton in 2011 when he told uh, then liberal leader Michael Ignatieff at the federal level, level uh, he was he was dis- dissing him about his attendance rates and saying, you know, like you, um, most people uh, who were trying to get a promotion would show up to work every day or something like that. Or something like a very similar like this. If you don't show up to work, you don't get exactly, a promotion. Exactly, yeah. So it was a very said. like memorable like zing and like you could see Ignatieff's face like just melting like he knew he was getting like <laughs> grilled. Uh, and Del Duca yep. kind of. I guess plagiarized that, but like it was effective because Doug Ford has only attended 18%. He only has a 18% attendance rate at Queens park, which is the Ontario provincial legislature. And so he kind of pulled a Leighton esque line out, like, you know, like most uh, something, something, something promotion day of work, like very similar. Like it was a very similar line. It was, but it was worse. Cause he said, like, if you don't attend work, you don't, you, you can't keep your job. Like he made it, he made a word salad out of it. Whereas Leighton made a killer hook and, and Del Duca couldn't quite do without twisting himself into a word. So pretzel. Like, and I, but like, I don't know if the word pretzel twisting is from like him trying not to plagiarize blatantly. You know what I mean? Like, I think maybe he was, mm. he was trying to skirt around saying the exact same thing Leighton said or maybe it was just maybe it literally was just him being a word salad generator the latter um but either way like that was like 
one of two punchlines of the whole night, like from anybody. And otherwise, Doug Ford got on relative got off relatively unscathed and sold his message well. Uh, he certainly won't scare off any centrist voters, I don't think, because, like I said, of the, the historical precedent he sets, he's made a lot of voters comfortable voting for him. But the attacking someone just for the sake of attacking someone is not necessarily a good strategy. Like, there are good attacks and there are bad attacks. Like, if you, like, for, for example, like, a terrible attack would be, you know, Doug Ford, you don't support Nazis enough. Why aren't you out there supporting Nazis? Like, right? You would never do that, right? It's true. He doesn't support Nazis, but that's a that's an attack that makes you look worse. Just because yeah. someone isn't doing something and you're the opposition doesn't mean you have to go after them. You go after them for faults that are going to reinforce your message and hurt his message. So the stuff like he's not attending, he's not attending Parliament. That's really effective against Ignatieff because the conservatives have done all the teeing up showing that, you know, he's just visiting. He, he flew into Canada from his from his Harvard gig. He He's not showing up. He, he's not here for you. He didn't come back for you. It shows you how effective those ads are that even several, <laughs> almost a decade later, we still Over a can, decade no, later. More than a decade later. Shit, you're right. That was in 2011. More than a decade later. We can still remember that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so so Leighton buried him because it fed into the narrative that that uh, you know Michael Ignatieff was a sleepwalker that he wasn't he, he wasn't actually invested in the game at all. Um, does anyone actually feel the same way about Doug Ford? I don't know. Like probably you could have painted a narrative about Doug Ford as someone that that isn't there for the for the regular person, but you need to do a lot of work because Doug Ford's whole narrative is the fact that he's the regular guy, that, that he represents the regular Joe, that, that he's here for you. And he does a lot of that. Like, uh, he, he, doesn't go to, he doesn't go to Parliament, but when there is a snowstorm, for example, he went driving out with his little shovel to, to help people oh, out on the highway. This was dangerous. It was <laughs> stupid. It was probably illegal because it contravened the emergency orders to stay, in your, to stay in your home and not go driving. But it's a classic Ford thing to do where he's in front of the cameras and he shows that he's being there for his community. And he has other things like he he gives out his personal cell phone number. I remember when yeah. he was running for PC leader. So you, the idea was you could call him whenever you wanted. You couldn't actually call him. It was a fake number, but whatever. No, he, it was real, but but it would go to a voice. It would oh, okay, to voicemail because okay. he would get bombarded. He does these sort of like token things, but they're they're actual products that feed into his narrative that show that he's here for the people. So when you are saying you don't show up for question period, I think you're actually hurting your narrative because what you're what you're really saying is. In my opinion, I think that the job of a premier is to talk in parliament rather than be on the front lines helping people. And that's actually helping Ford say, I disagree. I don't think parliament does anything. I actually want to be out here talking to real people, uh, dealing with real problems rather than making speeches in parliament. Like that's actually a, a that's that's the perfect response to that accusation, and Ford's brand is perfectly built to deflect the kind of accusation. One thing that that Doug Ford has gotten right, or another thing, you know, where we've got lots of praise, lots of praise for Doug Ford. We don't want to have all this praise, but he's good at a few a few things when it comes to his messaging. He's he's done very well strategically at playing nice with the federal liberals when a lot of his conservative counterparts would not. Now that's sort of like less to do with the election campaign but it is to do with the election campaign in the sense that it's a large reason why a lot of swing voters tolerate him and a lot of swing voters vote uh pc at the provincial level and and liberal federal level level and he's made them comfortable doing that by playing nice with the liberals by you know appearing in public with trudeau at ribbon cut ribbon cuttings and and 
saying nice things about how helpful the government has been to him. And uh, he's, he's definitely like made an effort to sort of almost in a, in a Houston-esque kind of way, not to the same extent, but detach himself from how conservatives have been traditionally viewed in a way that their federal cousins have not been able to do. Mm-hmm. I think that if that also is fits into his his brand about caring for real people, like he's someone who he seems to be willing to do deals with anyone. Like he was also on the stage praising Mike Schreiner and like when they were talking about investments in Guelph, you know, I'm willing to share the stage with Mike Schreiner and we can work together. I, I actually like him opposed to the other two. He's someone who he doesn't seem as ideological as the other Tories. He seems like someone who wants to achieve things, whereas the other Tories, particularly at the federal level, just seem like they're angry ideologues who they just want to yell the morally correct talking points without actually achieving something. Ford seems to be someone that says, you know, I'm willing to make ideological sacrifices in order to achieve real results for people. And maybe that's not what he actually does, but he understands what his brand is, yeah. and he understands the actions and messages that reinforce his brand. It's 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 political genius, and it, it needs to be celebrated. And I wish there were more politicians that were willing to take cues from that, because that's exactly what you need to be doing in politics. And the attacks on you know him bringing a binder and Del Duca saying. I didn't have someone write these lines for me. I'm coming up with them on the spot. Look at look at how genius I am. You know, I studied for the test, and Doug Ford's an idiot who's reading from the binder. If if you again, if you've done the work beforehand, if you have laid in 30 months of attack ads that that show what a, a, a doofus Doug Ford is and how you know his ignorance is costing lives, in like in the pandemic, for example, then calling him a, a, an idiot is, is is perfect. And Del Duca had a few attack points that could have fit in that narrative, particularly when um, the, he was criticized in response to COVID. I think that the competence narrative could be a good one, but the problem is, again, it, it also feeds into it, it feeds into the, a pre-existing narrative that Doug Ford has where I'm fighting against the elites and you're like, look at these bookish people that are so well studied and so well polished and I'm this, this rough-hewn, ordinary dad who's trying to, to fight for the ordinary folks. Mm. Emphasis on folks. If it's done wrong, it plays into his framing. I get it. Right? It's sort of like it just makes, it just makes Del Duca look more nerdy and more ridiculous and more out of touch with the ordinary people. But there is a way to attack it. And, and Andrea Horvath, actually, I, I think she identified the correct line of attack here when she, she brought up again and again and again, you know, he's he's in it only for his buddies. He's 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 trying to invest in highways that support his buddies. He's, you know, appointing his friends to powerful positions. It's good messaging. So if you're going to go after him for competence, you got to tie it into that. You like, you got to make Doug Ford look like a puppet. That's how you turn around his his populist messaging, where you say like, sure, this this dopey common man is a facade for a whole bunch of billionaire developers who are sucking the province dry. And you can absolutely bring uh, several examples to that if you want. That's the way that you defeat Doug Ford is you essentially talk over him. If Doug Ford challenges you any talking point, you say, well, I'm sure you'd say that Ford because that's what that's what your developer friends wrote in your binder here. Why am I debating you? I should be debating them, the people that are actually in charge. What do they have to say for themselves? Like you, you bring it to a higher level of a discussion and you humiliate the guy. That's how you, that's yeah. how you can actually uh, move this thing forward. But instead, they're a little bit stuck in a facile level of the conversation where 
they're not quite tying it to to some overarching corruption narrative. They have bits and pieces. They have Del Duca's going from the competence angle and and Horvath is going from the corruption angle, but they, they need to marry those points together. And I'm a huge follower of the Strategist podcast, and I was listening to one of their one of the strategists on that. Stephen Carter's on that podcast. Uh, he was the former campaign manager for Jody Gondak, who just um, became the mayor of Calgary. He was saying, what you got to do is you say, you know, in any province, in any uh, government, there's always going to be unexpected challenges, always going to be a crisis. When Doug Ford was met with a crisis, he failed and people lost their lives. When now we're, we're faced with an inflationary crisis, can we trust him to lead in this new crisis? No. And that's how you tie the competence points together. It's like rather than actually, rather than helping us, he's going to go on his worst instincts. He's going to use the crisis to better his friend, to line his friend's pockets rather than save Ontarians' lives. And look at Shoppers Drug Mart. Look at the $40 rapid tests. And exactly. Be, yeah. There you go. Now yeah. you have it, Liam. Now you have it. This is how you tie everything together. We still we have bits and pieces, but it's not tied together. And that's it's really unfortunate because Doug Ford's done so much that he should not be allowed to, to remain in office, but they're just not. his opposition isn't cohesive enough to, to take him down. No, and the the sad part, and I want to I want to be very clear about my personal views on Doug Ford here. This is a fellow that you know I, I call him a bull in a china shop for a reason, uh, and it's exactly what Jacob just said. He was confronted with a crisis, and he just completely imploded multiple yeah. times. The fact that people aren't chasing him out of government with pitchforks, not not literally, obviously, but like <laughs> um, the the fact that they aren't having the entire cabinet resign in shame, hanging their heads, walking out of the legislature at sundown, it, it boggles the mind, like sincerely boggles the mind. There have been some massive failures, uh, and that could have been in, been tied into a narrative about his, you know, purported uh, favoring his buddy developers, uh, kind of those lines that Andrea Horvath was road testing, and then one she's been re road testing for a while because of Doug Ford's, you know, relationship with Mattamy. Mattamy Holmes is a, is a large donor to, to Doug Ford. And so that's one that you can very much sell and, you know, oh, Shoppers Drug Mart. And I don't remember whether they were a donor or not, but um, there was some person, Doug Ford gets in trouble a lot for his personal connections. And there was some sort of backwards kind of personal connection with Shoppers Drug Mart. Uh, and he, oh, where, where do rapid tests appear in Ontario? At Shoppers Drug Mart for 40 bucks uh, a rapid test. And this is, this is the only place you could get rapid tests in Ontario for a while. And they were $40 a, a pop. So historic levels of mismanagement, and that's just the small scale. On a larger scale, there were entire long-term care homes that were following provincial guidance, which wasn't yeah. competent at all, or, or did not follow the science to the T for one, one matter or another. And Del Duca tried to point that out in the debate. He didn't really hit it home, and it's, it's something that requires expanding on, so I will. But basically, his gross incompetence in making proper COVID regulations that, that, that followed the science allowed thousands, thousands of Ontario seniors to die. And they had the second highest death toll in the country, second only to Quebec. And it was to the point where some long, some long term care homes who had jurisdiction over their own affairs, there's a handful that kind of like decided to uh, ignore the government guidelines because they were shit, frankly, and they were actually better off once they started using their own guidelines that they developed. Uh, based on, I don't know if it was federal advice, but some other source than the provincial government. And there was semi-regular conflict with the premier and the Ontario Science Table who guided uh, COVID regulations in the province. And obviously they're not politicians, so they can't decide, but they provided the advice. And uh, they'd been at odds with him again and again on various measures. And uh, most notably, those measures were 
the April 2021 measures that I believe caused one or several members of the board to leave because he just put out these dopey restrictions. And Del Duco alluded to this as well, the, the playground thing where they ban kids from going to playgrounds in the middle of COVID as if that was going to stop COVID when outdoors is actually one of the safest places you can be. And just like it, it was those those bonanza kind of what I would call COVID theater regulations that came out. It was like, how do we simultaneously look like we're doing something and we're saying yes, you know, his brand, while actually steamrolling everything behind the scenes. And it's, I, I don't want to say Doug Ford's a tactician, but he's, he's certainly been able to like thread the needle in appearing competent and or at least a lot of Ontarians kind of shrug their shoulders as if COVID's in the rearview mirror and so I, I I'm not sure if if that's why his failures on the pandemic aren't really having an effect on his reputation but it's a shame because there's a lot of other places in the world where somebody like that would be would be out of office at sundown uh and the entire government would have resigned and the fact that he might win a majority because the progressive choices in Ontario can't find a coherent message is nothing short of shameful because they've been screaming their heads off in the at Queens park about how Doug Ford has blood on his hands. Well, then you better goddamn show it and you better explain it on the debate stage. Yeah. Why didn't you say that in the debate? Like that was the perfect line to bring up in the debate and, and no one did. No. I guess they don't want, they got melodramatic over all the wrong things. Like you're talking about children not being able to play in the park. Like Del Duca brought up his kids over and over and over again. I guess it's trying to, to be relatable. No, it's, to, I don't know. It tries to prove that he's got laid at least twice in his life, which is admittedly two times more than I would have expected. Oh, Jacob, Jesus. <laughs> It's like, yeah, I guess he's trying to be relatable, but it's like when he talks about, oh, boo-hoo, my kids couldn't play in the playground. Like the, the problem is not that his kids couldn't play in the playground. The problem is that Doug Ford was using medical advice that was a year out of date. So it's like he, again, he's making the criticism, but he's not tying it in to the overarching narrative. That Like the, the problem with, with Doug Ford making those regulations is that he was making regulations that killed people. If he had as well, Del Duca was saying, whenever Ford basically uh, made up a statistic or whenever, whenever Ford lied about his record or, or whenever he obscured a part of his past, Del Duca often would would talk over or basically try to insert himself into the conversation as aggressively as possible and he would often waste time where i think actually he made himself look look terrible and picking every possible fight like especially at the very beginning when he 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 stands in front of ford and says you know you're entitled to your own opinions but you're not entitled to your own facts you know that is 10 seconds that he could have devoted to making up his own counterfacts rather than stating that out that, that outright like you, you don't waste time when you when you have a limited number of seconds to speak so if your opponent is there lying you have to contribute a counter narrative and if your narrative is Doug Ford is a liar then you have to say you have to give proof that there are lies and then you have to show how the lies are hurting people which you can do you can again you talk about your covid theater regulations that's a lie that cost thousands of lives that's great that's great that that's that's perfect messaging did dal duca do it no he didn't they would get halfway to a good message and then just stop it was yeah, so yeah. weird I, like he, you're not willing to to pull it but they get just as it was so vague. Nobody said anything. I know, and like anything. that was like nobody said anything. That was the thing anything. that really hurt me the most. Where 
I, I think both the Liberals, uh, Del Duke was a little bit better, but but uh, Andrew Horvath especially, rather than talking about the policies, and, and I've read through their platform, they have the NDP has great policies. Rather than talking about their policies, she would instead summarize the goals of the policies rather than actually talking about the specific uh, measures they're going to implement to, to make people's lives better. They would just say, you know, we're, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And the, the public doesn't care. Like if you, they, they, of course, they, they want healthcare to be better. They want uh, long-term care to be better, but you can't just trust someone at their word that they're going to make it better. They have to give you proof points. It's a way, it's the way they packaged it. It's the way they packaged it. I think they tried to boil down, they tried to boil down their entire platform to a few catchy words, like to a catchy slogan, when what they should have done is what we've often talked about in private conversations. And I think on this podcast, like, I, I hate, again, hate to cite a conservative as this model, but like the Stephen Harper kind of platform design, the Stephen Harper 2006 platform design. Yeah. Let Pick three strong points. Street, three strong points. So, okay, you know, she would get on stage and she would say vaguely, we're going to fix healthcare, we're going to make sure people have good paying jobs. Like it was it was fifth grade reader level stuff. That's fine. But you 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 have to, instead of like saying, saying it like that, cite specific policies and, uh, from your your three sort of policy planks and have that double as your message. That's the more effective way to sell it. Instead of boiling, you know, a 25, 30 point platform down to a phrase, it's a much more effective way to retail yourself. So Stephen Harper had, uh, for context, he had lower the GST, establish the Accountability Act, I think was, was one, and then there was a third one. So he had three very simple policies that people wouldn't understand. Andrea Horbath, if she had, you know, so like, let's say she's going to get in, in, you know, guarantee good paying jobs, you know, like pr protecting workers with a new, a new deal with the nurses union to raise nurse pay by 3% or, but you'd boil it down simpler. You'd say, you know, 3% nur uh, nurse wage hike or something like that. Uh, and then you could have, you know, another progressive policy is so a progressive policy B and then progressive policy C. And then you, that would be, that would be your cert, your triangle of policies that you would sell and that would be your message mm -hmm. and you would just when anybody asks you why you're running i'm running to to bring you policy a policy b policy c b and then you can talk about your values because we want to lift ontarians up yeah. blah 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 and then you can have your sloganeering but you can't you can't boil down an entire platform to a slogan unless you're doug ford or donald trump <laughs> <laughs> well, no. So, so it's actually Donald Trump is the is the one I was going to bring into the conversation because build a wall is probably the absolute best example of your policy. policy and also, message. it's policy and message together. Yeah. So it's like it's it shows. And again, building a wall is a terrible idea to fix immigration problems because the vast majority of of illegal immigrants come into the country legally. They just overstay their visas. So. Building a wall does not, in, in any sense, protect you against illegal immigrants, but whatever. Intuitively, it makes sense. If you think there are hordes of people who are trying to clamor into your country, building a big wall to stop them is a, is a perfect... It, it just intuitively makes sense. And then, as well, it's, it, it suits his message of, like, I want to stop illegal immigration. I want to take and control of your lives again. Like, it, it fits every possible message. But it's also a, it's a, it's a very simple symbol that you can comprehend that policy and message, as you, as you said, that's the, that needs to be the goal, I think, for every politician going forward is to find 
a solution that is that simple that also conveys your values as well. And I think progressives have a lot of difficulty in doing that because they're more academics that, that are members of the progressive movement. And so they want to be more nuanced. They, they want to have a flair for policy. They want to be more wonkish. And um, it's a complete failure. You need to have policies that just make sense intuitively. And I, I think that you know something like universal basic income is, is something that, that fits better or the fight for 15 in the United States, like a, a higher minimum wage is uh, is another classic example of that. Um, One million uh, jobs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you, Mr. Hudak. That was, I'm going to cut 100,000 jobs to create a million. That's, that's genius math. Greatest test um, right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I'm, I'm trying to think of uh, how a progressive could uh, do the same thing for for housing. I don't know. Maybe like a rent, rent control. I guess the the NDP is trying to do that. I think probably though what you what you would want is like a it's either a it's either a wealth tax or it's something where you're literally capping the the cost of housing. Like it's it's something that like an an economist would say that's a terrible policy would never work. But it's something that people can understand. I don't know if it's like maybe you're you're literally saying that you know houses and houses can't be more than a million dollars. You make a ridiculous policy. They make it a ridiculous policy, but it's something that's simple. It's something that's a, that's a few lines and that, yeah. that seems like it solves a problem. Yeah. And you keep it at that level because even if Doug Ford spends his whole time refuting your policy, that's, you know, Doug Ford talking about policy is in his absolute weakest element. So that's, you want to bring Doug Ford into the conversation. You as a progressive actually want to bring up stupid policies because you want to, to reel Doug Ford in and, and you want Doug Ford to be the one to call you stupid because he's the last person on earth that can ever accuse someone else of being dumb. So you want to bait him. You want to trap him. You want to, you want to bring him in and you want to bring him up to, to a level of conversation where he's going to be weak. And I think progressive have the, the opposite problem where we want to make Doug Ford look dumb and Doug Ford only gets stronger the dumber he looks. Like buck a beer was a similar to build a wall. I think in many cases it was a it was a dumb policy that conveyed values and it, and it worked well for him. It, he didn't even need a platform. He literally just had buck a beer and and he he got all the way to Queens Park on that. Yep, that's a pretty cursed observation. I I think basically the the next few weeks, you know, clock's ticking for the opposition leaders to do something because it's looking pretty clear to me that we're gonna have four more years of Ford. And at least two more years of Ford, whether it's a majority or minority, because I am questioning whether these leaders would, would have the gall to do something that is well within their parliamentary powers and and cooperate to avoid Doug Ford from getting a to prevent Doug Ford from getting a second term. And I think they're helping to feed the the, for the current frame on coalitions and, and partnerships between parties in Canada, which is that it's undemocratic. And that perception was planted by Stephen Harper in 2011 and has been continually perpetuated by progressive parties that refuse to work together. And they've sort of both flip-flopped on the issue, like they've said that they wouldn't prop up a Doug Ford minority, but that they wouldn't work together. So either they're saying that to be coy, or they're saying it because they're too caught, trying to be too cautious, or both. But if they don't find some way to work together in a minority situation to stop him from staying in power, when they've spent the past four years shouting about how he has blood on his hands, which I think is true... If they don't keep their word on that, then they're they're not worth the paper that their uh, their leadership title was written on. It's it it's it's just that simple. I don't know what you think about well, that. Like you can't claim that someone is the worst person that ever lived and then let them retain power. 
if your message is that, that someone is, is terrible, then you need to act like that person is terrible. And I guess we've got a little bit of that in the debate, but, and this is where I'd like to, to bring back the discussion, because I, I do think that as an opposition leader, you need to be auditioning for the role of premier. And for that to be the case, you need to be attacking the premier. And you need to be showing that you're going to be the better premier, not the better leader of the opposition. And I think we had three opposition leaders yesterday night. They were all auditioning for the role of leader of the opposition rather than the, the role of, of the premier. They're all trying to show that of the left-wing parties, they are the most left-wing, they are the ones that are the best progressive alternative to Ford. But none of them were, were willing to go all the way and show why progressivism in general is better than Ford's conservatism. They weren't, they weren't willing to, to go over the edge. Pierre Polyev, just to, to, to bring it back to the conservative debates, Pierre Polyev is known as a fighter. He's, he's known as an attack dog. Yeah. But in, on the debate stage, he doesn't go after every single one of the, of the five people running against him. He mostly focuses on attacking Patrick Brown and Jean Charest because they're two people that are to the left of him. And he knows the more times that he attacks people from the left, the more he reinforces his brand. Pierre Polyev's greatest weakness, his greatest vulnerability is probably Leslie Lewis attacking from him from the right. But he never goes against Leslie Lewis. He never, he never directly attacks her because he knows that if he attacks someone on the right, he loses credibility with the right. And I think very similarly, you know, you're talking about uh, blue-red switchers. Yeah, that, that probably is enough for Del Duca to become leader of the opposition. If he's able to knock down Doug Ford to a minority because there are some suburban voters in the GTA that switch from Ford to Del Duca, yeah, he can probably benefit from that. But if Del Duca is actually going to make a liberal majority government in Ontario, which is ostensibly the goal, he needs to convince a lot of NDP voters as well to join his side. And when he attacks the NDP, especially when he attacks the NDP to defend a thoroughly discredited win liberal government, he is hurting himself in doing that. Andrew Horvath is not the most popular leader that the province has ever seen, but she, I believe that she still has the highest uh, approval ratings, aside from Mike Schreiner, of any of the leaders. When you, when you go after the most popular person for an unpopular reason, you're, you're, going, to, you're going to lose points for that, period. If you're going to attack someone, attack Ford. Yeah, I mean, I think you and I disagree on the nuance of that. Like, I, but I think, given the situation as it was last night, certainly the the focus of those two candidates, Horvath and Del Duca in particular, should have been the premier. And I would say it was maybe he was seventy percent the focus for Del Duca and like fifty percent the focus for Horvath, and that's not good enough. And I mean, I think that was exacerbated by what we already talked about, some of the weakness on policy and, and or, or not even on policy, sorry, on, on messaging. But that was sort of the impression I was left with. I was left feeling very underwhelmed and disappointed. And I, I'm just waiting for everybody to shrug Doug Ford back in. Well, it's like the, his goal basically was to speak the least amount possible in that debate because he's already ahead. You know, Doug Ford, whenever he opens his mouth, he's he's going to stuff his foot right in it. So the more he can sit back and look pretty and let the other guys scrap it out, the more he wins. And just as a, a, I guess, a, a final point before we, before we get around to closing this, Doug Ford, speaking about putting his foot in his mouth, uh, there's been some controversy here over candidates. Uh, the liberals have lost quite a few. But Doug Ford's education minister 
Stephen Lecce has gotten in some real hot water over participating in a slave auction when he was in a fraternity in Western University. Oh boy. A slave auction. So that, that fits really well in uh, you know today's identity politics when you sell yourself off as a slave for laughs. And uh, rather than condemning his education minister, Doug Ford last night said, Ontario has the best education minister we've ever had. Oh, that's gosh. his that's his ringing endorsement of, of Stephen Lecce. I cringed. I cringed yeah. at that. Like, why is this man allowed to be Premier of Ontario? This guy should be fucking buried. The saddest part, Jake, it was like 35, 35 to 40 percent of the of of the populace at any given time just kind of shrugs at that and goes, eh. Yeah, yeah I, I know. know. I know. <laughs> and not, that's like. That's what's that's so what, That's a failure of opposition. That's a pure failure of opposition. Like this guy has, I think it's very similar to the Trump thing where Trump had a lot of things wrong with him, but he was wrong in so many different places that his opponents had a difficulty making a coherent na- uh, narrative with, of all his faults because he was, he was wrong on yeah. just so many levels that the media in particular and the Democratic Party got obsessed with, with the daily hit of attacking him for the, for the latest thing he said rather than bringing up the one or two really big things he had done in the past over and over again and making that the story. When you just go after him for all the small, little shitty things that he's done, the public loses the narrative. They, they lose the ability to understand you know, how all these things matter. The, the attack isn't really, yeah, the, the, the attacks aren't, aren't landing. But if you can paint Doug Ford in uh, consistent colors and make him so repugnant that the vo- average voter can't stand the idea of this guy remaining in office. The same way that like a CPC voter literally cannot stomach the idea of Justin Trudeau remaining prime minister for a single day more. And, and that's because the conservatives constantly talk about a, a consistent narrative about Justin Trudeau. If you can paint Doug Ford in the same in the same colors, he's done more than enough that the voters can be sick of him. But because you attack him in so many different ways and so many different angles all the time, everything falls off of him. And on that typically happy note, uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground on this. I think we've comprehensively broken it down, uh, and I hope you enjoyed that, listeners. Um, it's It's been nothing but blue skies and golden sunshine from us here at Speech, at the, Speech from the Throne. And uh, I hope that you tune in next week for much more. If you want to send us your thoughts on that as usual, you can send them to Speech from the throne at gmail.com. That's speech from the throne at gmail.com. We always love to hear from you. In the interim, until the next one, I'm signing off. Take care. Bye bye bye.